Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of The Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the High Performance Director of Austin FC, David Tenney. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Connor. It's a pleasure. Uh, Dave, as we begin with everyone and you're no different, could you please bring us through your earliest football memory? My earliest football memory? Um, my earliest football memory is probably... Um, the days of the old Washington diplomats in the DC being able to see, you know, see uh, Johan Cruyff play as a very, very small kid um, in RFK Stadium, you know, back in probably 1980, I think around then. Um, and my first memory watching uh, Johan Cruyff play against the New York Cosmos with a, you know, full sold out RFK Stadium, which I think, you know, my generation was, you know, kind of the first one to be able to experience out of, you know, full football, soccer stadium um, with, uh, you know, with some world-class players like that. So definitely made an impact on me and, you know, made me choose this this sport over any other sports that were available in America. So it sounds as much that's a memory which you reflect on often? Um, no, like I probably have not thought about that for a couple of years until you just said that, but um I mean, clearly impactful, um, you know, and, and led me kind of, you know, later in my career down, you know, really looking more at the Dutch Dutch side of things and, um, you know, follow Johan Cruyff in his career after that. Because it certainly made for an interesting pathway for yourself, Dave. If I'm not mistaken, you did your UEFA A, if I'm correct, in the Czech Republic. Yeah, yeah, it was the Czech Republic uh, Football Association A license, yeah. Um, in 2004, um, I'd had a... a a colleague of mine in the Washington DC area that had done took a year sabbatical and, and spent a year in Prague and took the course and um, had set it up to allow me to to take the course as well at uh, through Charles University in Prague. And what you were exposed to in the Czech Republic at the time, Dave, was that revelatory, I suppose, to what you would have been privy to in the States as a young man growing up in the soccer? Culture? 100%. Yeah. And I was at the stage where I had done, you know, several of my courses already here in the States. And um, I always had this sense that there was, there was something that was missing at that point, you know, and this is, you know, mid 2000s and um, not, you know, not, not how the courses are currently structured, but um, a lot on, on, you know, very, very rigid kind of teaching and expectation of coaching cues and, you know, some, some how you structure a training session um and and i always had the sense that there was there was something that was a little bit off and um you know so i had the chance to take this course and you know within within the course you know we are you're all assigned to a to a team and i was assigned to the the sparta prague under 19s you know for the for my time of, of staying in the czech republic where i was kind of out there field side with them every day and um and they did, you know, a series of one v one, three v two type exercises in that day. And you know, when I asked the coach, you know, what, okay, well, the coach asked me, well, so what did you think of the training session? And you know, it was is a lot of finishing and around the box. And um, and his his he nodded and he says, yeah, but you know, first exercise is sprint power, duration of work and work to rest is this, and second exercise is speed endurance and work to rest uh, is this, and we're looking for X number of reps and. And I've kind of clicked in that just was something at that time was not a part of our coaching courses is it's nice to set up a, a training session for, you know, to, to address a certain topic 
but what we're doing on which days and how long we're doing them and when are our hard days and when are our easy days and what type of cycles we build over a month. That was just something that was not, was not present in those, those coaching courses at all, or really coach education, you know, in, in our country at least. Um, and so that, that kind of this light bulb went on then of like, okay, this, this makes sense to me and this kind of resonates. And at the same time I was, um, you know, going through the exercise science education, the university. And so, you know, I kind of went down that path um, of really focusing on periodization, planning, uh, how to build right, you know, the right training cycles, um, just really kind of focus on that over, you know, over your typical youth coaching path, I guess, at that point. And coming back to the U.S., after learning all of that, Dave, did you find it tough to assimilate back into the soccer culture? No, because I, I do think there was a general recognition of that was a there was a need there. Um, yeah, you know, I, I came back in and 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 it was I felt doors just kind of opened up at that point because I feel like I now had some skills and and you know a, a structure that was really unique and that teams, clubs, coaches were searching for. And so I actually felt the opposite where it's just, you know, all of a sudden I was working, you know, within a year I was doing the planning and uh, periodization for two, you know, two men's and women's, you know, college programs where I was at George Mason and I was with the women's pro team at that point. And, um, and then, you know, within two years, then I was uh, in MLS. So I felt like it, it definitely gave me some skills that helped me kind of, open up doors and before we look at your time at the centers which was completely formative in your coaching um let's just let's first zoom in on that role of high performance the one which you've become yeah. renowned for essentially Dave. how would you come to describe it in your own words um it's definitely the role of a of a facilitator where you're really facilitating the the communication and programming between you know coaching performance, fitness performance, uh, and medical, and really making sure that there's a common language and good decision-making and, um, and there's just a, a, a collaborative nature and mindset amongst all practitioners in those spaces. And then when we speak of high performance, I mean, you did spend nine years with the Sounders, Dave, if I'm not mistaken, who were true pioneers in the MLS at that time in terms of applying evidence-based data, uh, performance analysis, so on and so forth. And why do you think their staff members were so able to collaborate, communicate, and evolve really the speed of change at the time? Uh, I don't know. I, it's a good question. Um, yeah, I think we were one of the first where, which is now kind of second nature for a lot of clubs, but I think we were, we were the first where we were collecting a lot of data at that time, I think there's lots of clubs that were collecting a lot of data. And I think there was this evolution in some ways on the data science side where um, we were the first in MLS. I think we were the first to use GPS on a daily basis in MLS. We were the first to have just a real centralized data structure. Um, you know, at that point, I had hired Ravi Ramanani, who ended up being you know really instrumental in a lot of the Sounder success after. And he had come over from Microsoft and you know, I think there was there was an evolution in the early 2010s where you had you know your your sports scientists that were just used to 
using their external hard drive and doing everything in Excel. And, you know, they kind of come and go with their own data um, into this world where you have a centralized data structure and you're really starting to have coaching put their data together with, with the sports science and then medical being able to tap into that and really ramping up how you make good decisions, right? Cause sometimes we can talk about, Oh, you know, evidence-based um, mindset can, can I think be cliche at times, you know, but what it really is, is it's about integrating all data under, you know, kind of one umbrella, understanding how, the interactions between all the different types of data and how that impacts, you know, performance, uh, fatigue, injury risk, things like that. And, uh, and there's actually, there's a, there's a mechanical side of like, how do we actually get all this data into one place? And I think, you know, what was special about the sounders is I think we are one of the first to do that, you know, within, within MLS. Um, and that just, I think helped us elevate not just how we play and train, but then how we scout as well. And that's one of the things that, you know, Robbie had brought to the, to the, uh, you know, the Sounders then was this, this layer of, of data and decision-making on the scouting side that had not previously, previously existed. Well, I'm sure with these things, Dave, I know what they had myself, it can go down quite a rabbit hole at times, but I mean, you guys were quite purposeful with the application of that throughout your tenure. Uh, one of the rules which I've heard you speak about in the previous podcast before was that you had an 80-20 rule for those of which, including myself, that not don't know too much about it. Could you please um, inform us a bit more as to the nature of that? Yeah, yeah, I think it's um, everyone has their, you know, kind of creates their way of seeing things. And um, I think what you want to avoid as a, as a coach or practitioner is, is using data information or any sort of information you're bringing in um thinking that you've got a process and then going on auto autopilot and just doing that year after year after year right so in the space we live in sports science you're always getting bombarded with new technologies um you're always you know, even from a budget side i mean mls does not have unlimited budget so you're always thinking about what the next technology you might get to help you answer the questions you want to answer um and i think generally you you always have this intuition that, you know, you, you've got certain data sets that you think will be very informing to you in decision-making. But I think if you're really open to the process, um, you should you should attempt to about throw out about 20% of what you do every year. Because you know, I think we, we all reach, reach points where, um, you know, I'll talk to our, our data science people and say, hey, like we, you know, we want to, we want this visual. This was really going to tell us something. It might be, you know, distance covered in a certain velocity band or distance covered in attack versus defense. And, you know, the, you'll have these ideas of what will inform you a little bit better on what the uh, team is doing actually on the field. And then you reach a point two, three, four months down the road where you think, you know, I thought that was going to give me like some really good insight, but it's actually not. I need to pull that out. You know, saying that 80-20 rule is, is, purposefully pulling out 20% of how you see things every year and trying to inject something new in there that will, will allow you to get some, some insights that you wouldn't otherwise have, you know, cause I think if you stay in the business a long time, it's so easy to get stagnant. It's so easy to, you know, to be stale and just do the same things you did the year before. Um, and I think that kind of trying to live by that 80, 20 rule pulls you out of that. And that seems something that you actually live by because even in preparation for this podcast, Dave, I see that you're still under, you've just finished a PhD this year, which we'll speak more about later, but you're even doing another course now 
on tactical periodization. I mean, is that eighty twenty rule inextricably linked to you and your own staff members' own self development? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I've I've thought about it like that, but I think yeah, certainly it's um, it goes for ourselves as much as you know the data you collect inside a club of of you know coaches have such a level of, of bias i think at times like we're all we, we're all you know humans not even just coaches humans are just biased individuals and it's really um important that you continue to challenge your own belief system um, sorry about that a dog there um so it's important that you know that that don't if a lot of times with the coach if something works a certain time that's their go-to forever right and i think that it's important to weed that out and and just question you know that that yeah do i think am i biased when i'm when i'm seeing things in a certain way and so this kind of this constant education i think helps you reevaluate your belief system um because again we shouldn't be seeing things exact same way we saw them five or ten years ago right And, and i think you know it's something I stress to my staff is that there's things we're doing this year in Austin that I never did. There's a lot of things we're doing this year in Austin that I never did in Seattle. Uh, there's a lot of ways we're looking at training, measuring training, very different from what we did in Seattle. Um, and I think that's really important because I think that you should have this game kind of slowly evolving system that you utilize you know, to, to work on a daily basis. And that seems very much akin to groupthink. And I know one of the things, according to a previous Harvard Business Review before, was that one of the characteristics of high-performing teams is having that cognitive diversity. Do you think we're doing yeah. enough of that within the soccer sphere? No, no, not at all. You know, it, it's interesting. I was on. I was actually in our in our tactical periodization course this week. We uh, we were discussing that in our in our WhatsApp group. You know this concept of cognitive diversity and um and i was lucky you know within my within my phd i actually spent you know a fair amount of time reading a lot of research on cognitive diversity and you know um and i think it starts with you know as a as a coach practitioner manager within an organization who are you hiring right so i think who are you surrounding yourself with and I think the challenge is oftentimes if we are not really secure about our position in clubs, we can hire people that we know, people that we like, and um, oftentimes think very similar to we do. And that gives us a sense of security in an organization because we're surrounding ourselves with people we like and trust and all that. But oftentimes those people don't always challenge you. Um, And also um, they might see the world the exact same way you see the world. Right. And so I think this concept of cognitive diversity allows you to surround yourself with people that see things differently, that process things differently. Um, but having said that, it's definitely, um, you know, a very uh, upside down U-shaped relationship, isn't it? I think there is there's a sweet spot of cognitive diversity. You don't want too much. Right. And I think if you decide to hire a staff where um you have people from all these different disciplines and all these different backgrounds and you, you know, you have a ton of cognitive, cognitive diversity. You may not have the same language. You might not see the world at all in the same way. And then it's going to be more difficult to collaborate. So I think 
cognitive diversity is really important, but you have to be really strategic. And when you're building a staff that you're, you're finding that kind of sweet spot where you're being challenged, but you still have a common language and you can still build a, a culture where you, you will eventually see things in, in a similar way. It seems to me as well in the macro, Dave, that that is partly to explain for the rise of the teach trade practitioner within leadership positions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, um, I know I come into a staff with a certain, as I'm building a staff for myself, I have a certain skill set. Um, and then I need to surround myself with people that complement my skill set, not duplicate my, my skill set, but come, but, uh, you know, uh, complement it and, and really knowing what those areas that I need to complement my skill set, you know? So I think that's, that's that T-shaped leadership that I think is really, uh, critical. Cause again, I think it's quite often where, you know, people will want to hire people that think just like them. Um, and that's just not where, you know, high performance really lives. No, and it's very, it's quite very rigid. It's quite very predetermining. Um, I'm going to link this to a quote recently. I'm reading Pep Yinder's book on Liverpool season uh, from last yeah. year. Don't know if you've read it thus far, but absolutely terrific reading. Yeah. Wouldn't have yeah. it. Oh, it's, it's amazing. But he has one great quote at the start of the season where everybody is responsible for everything. That's got me thinking a lot about predetermined roles within football. I've heard, and I'll link this back to something which you've spoken about before in a previous podcast, where you speak about clarity, which it can be fast become rigidity, you know, and a precursor to that early is why not have an environment of trust where everyone is responsible for everything? And for me, that's the perfect antidote to this evolution of change, which we're all experiencing at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's that if you go back to the cognitive diversity side, um, the problem with being overly diverse too far to that side of the spectrum is then you can have a lack of trust, right? So you have to be able to see enough of the world in the same way that you, you will naturally have a level of trust. Um, but then you can't all see the world exactly the same way because then there won't be any challenge there won't be any any cognitive challenge and that's what's i think interesting about you know and obviously liverpool have their issues this year but they've been a tremendously successful organization and and if you look at you know the way jürgen klopp has built his own staff i think that's a good example of of uh you know a level of cognitive diversity where they have you know obviously pep lenders has come in and then you know they brought with him Vitor Matos, you know, who's from the tactical periodization school, you know, who's subtly different than Pep because obviously Pep is Dutch, but he was, you know, in Port in Porto, and um, and I think you know it's a good example of of you know club bringing someone with him who's been with him I think the whole time since when he was at Mainz and Dortmund and the staff as well as now Pep and uh, and Vitor as well to who who also have a relationship with each other and that staff you know really I think challenges challenges each other in a positive way which i think that comes out you know in the book where they're they're trying new things and um you know and yet that it's a safe environment with with a lot of trust and i see that to be a common characteristic amongst the greats i suppose dave if you'd like to call them that i mean the likes of Klopp, he's not scared at all to bring in people that are absolutely yeah. specialists in their field We've seen uh, Sir Alex Ferguson in the past do it in a different way, where he changed his head coach every two to three seasons. 
I mean, I can see you've done it yourself, really, for, uh, challenging your own biases throughout your own career. First of all, moving off to Europe, then coming back. And you took a break out of soccer for a while. You went into the NBA with Orlando Magic. I mean, how formative a time was that experience outside of soccer? Yeah, I mean, it was challenging. I don't know. If, I don't know how formative it was. I mean, it was uh, challenging in a really positive way. You know, it was to go into such a different sport. And again, you know, I, I had been at the Seattle Sounders. It was my ninth year in Seattle, and we had won a Must Cup. You know, the the year prior, and um, and you know, Seattle is a great organization, and um, they they treated me so well. But I also just had the urge to try to build something in a totally different environment. You know, and uh, interviewed with the Orlando Magic and, you know, their their general manager, President Jeff Weltman, I just was really impressed with and really wanted to work with him and um, and really challenge myself to work in the NBA. Uh, I think it's it's such a switching sports was so challenging, um, but also the role was very different, you know, so I think what I learned and it went into my, you know, into my PhD a little bit is that each, each sport in each league subtly changes, you know, the demands of, of a particular role. Right. And so my role was really, really different in the NBA relative to major league soccer and MLS. And that was really challenging. And, and I think also it helped me really understand what I'm, what I'm good at, you know, and what I'm, what I'm not as good at. Right. And I think there was there was a level of uh, humility, you know, that I think uh, that the whole experience gave me as well, because I knew I knew what I was good at, you know, and, and a lot of that was communication with the coaches and the planning and, you know, the structure, the training cycles, you know, all the things we've talked about. And in that role and in the NBA, you, you don't do that quite as much right there. It's really managing a larger staff, a larger performance and medical staff, and you're dealing with agents and talking to agents and talking to doctors and uh and it was a, a very very different role um and i'm grateful to have had it you know it, it made me a better practitioner but you know i think it would it surprised me how how different the role ended up being you know and then also just understanding the nuance of the sports right each sport has its own you know uh each sport in each league has just its own unique nuance about it and you know, I think that not having as extensive a background in basketball, it was, uh, that was a challenge on it. You know, I felt like I could have stayed there and, you know, and, and understood NBA a little bit better, um, over time. But, but then also, as we talked about with the, the Johan Cruyff, you know, uh, experience in the beginning, like that's, this is what I love to do. Right. And, and I felt that it made me understand that I, I actually loved soccer, football, and I, and I just missed it. Right. And I, I didn't, I didn't think that was going to be the case as I went into my experience, in the NBI. Well, that's brilliant self-awareness to have nonetheless. Um, one thing which you spoke, which you touched upon briefly there was your own PhD, Dave, which I'd like you to speak a bit about because it was on organizational leadership. Just wondering, did the competencies that you saw that you had, that you needed to have for that role within the NBA, was that totally drastically different to football and in event of that in um in addition to that several other sports yeah no no i think i think the the competencies are fairly universal but there's there's different ones that are stressed you know in different ways and so 
um, you know, for example, you know, one a really really key competency is you definitely have to be able to manage up, you know, within within that role of high performance instructor. But managing up in in MLS is different than managing up in the NBA, who you're actually managing up to, right? Is it more towards the coach? Is it more towards your general manager, or president? Um, you know that the the principles were the same. Um, you know, you you really need to work as a as a communicator and facilitator within your staff. You have to be what we call a, a performance facilitator, where your staff has to work really really well together. Right, it's it's less about you and how you and how you're facilitating your staff working together, and then that's I think that's one of the key and interesting insights that I had, you know, within the course is that um, as I interviewed all these high performance directors, um, there was definitely a a shift in evolution as I as I interviewed different ones at different ages, right, and the, those in their in their thirties spoke a lot about feeling pressure to make the right decisions, feeling, you know, pressure to be seen as a good decision maker, worrying about making mistakes. Um, you know, that those are, that's some of the, you know, the, the issues that popped up, you know, that emerged from the data talking to those, you know, those uh, participants, but then some of the older ones, those around the age of 50, they didn't speak about it at all. They spoke about, facilitating their staff, um, managing up, putting the right people in the right places. You know, it was very much less about them and more about how they are facilitating their, their, uh, their staff, you know, and I think that was, that's what was interesting of just the shift of practitioner to a facilitative manager over the course of, of one's career. Um, and having those, and the skill set ends up being really different, right? You, you can be in your thirties and you have to be a really good coach and you have to reach athletes and you have to be able to teach technique and you have to, um, you know, be able to go on and express things, you know, in, on the field or, you know, or, or in the gym, you know, to, to athletes. And then, and then 15 years on you're leading a group and you have to be able to manage up and, and decide who to hire and um, make sure you're, you're, managing the dynamics within your staff. And, um, and those are really, really different skill sets. And if you were to have those conversations in 10 years time, Dave, do you envisage those topics changing or remaining the same when it comes to high performance? I think they're con they'll continue to shift. You know, I think, um, you know, if you talk to people in the, and it was like this in the NBA and, it, and it's like this in uh, a lot of the, you know, the big leagues, in the U.S. and in Europe, um, athletes are, are starting to use their own outside people, right? And that might be for medical or, or you know, or performance reasons. But um, there's definitely the shift of the role of the high performance director is very much going to be around now. How do you deal with the the external people around these players, right? Because the, you know, the the new athlete, the new Gen Z athlete is going to be totally different in how they, you know, what they want, what they need um, and, and the support system they have around them. And then, you know, our role being able to interact with, with those people. I think that's, that's already apparent, you know, within most of the big leagues in the world, whether it's premier league or NFL or NBA um, as players make more, you know, more financially, they're actually surrounding themselves with people to help them, 
that are outside the club. And I think, you know, managing that ecosystem is going to be really, really critical. And another thing, I mean, bringing it back to the current day, we were just speaking off camera, Dave, about my visit to Austin FC at the end of August. Um, was there with the academy, just saw some great work being done by Juan, Jason, Mimo and all the guys that are there. Um, for those who are listening that don't really have any notion about Austin, where it is, about the football club, I mean, could you just explain to everyone how unique, in fact, the city actually is and the football club there? Yeah, I mean it's uh well first it's the it's the only it it's you know it's one of the fastest growing cities in in the U.S. and you know one of their seat one of the reasons I was attracted to it is you know it reminded me a lot of Seattle from the standpoint of uh you know this vibrant city that now was adding you know the the tech explosion and you know and Apple is building a headquarters there and you know um the the number of tech companies are going in there um make it you know such a unique environment and then to have, and then for it to be the, you know, Austin FC to have, be the only major league sports team in that city. The first major league sports team in that city gives this a natural support from the people. Um, and it's got very much this tech driven fan base as well as a, you know, Latin American driven fan base that, that makes it really, really unique. Um, Cause it's got a, again, it's got a, a hipster vibe along with a, with a Latin vibe, which I think makes it, makes it really, really cool. Um, and then support from ownership, you know, they really supported, you know, building the academy and, you know, we, we've built a fantastic, you know, world-class training facility. Um, so for the financial support from ownership has been, you know, amazing. And, um, you know, and then also just, they've allowed the club, you know, Claudia Rain and Josh Wolf to hire really, really good people, you know, across the, uh, the academy and first team. So, yeah, it's been it's been really unique and really special, and I think you you're seeing that. You know, last year was a little bit challenging from you know the first year as a our inaugural season, but um, you know, I think this year we've been able to really grow and, and evolve, and, and you're seeing that you know on, on the field. There's somewhat foreboding in that as well, too. I mean, the results weren't always there last season, as against what they are this season, but. I've heard people speak about Austin's progress. I mean, people have not been surprised to see the results and the performances this season. They see it as part of the sustainable growth. There doesn't really seem to be any ceiling on what that football club can achieve in the coming few years. If I was to ask you a question, if you were able to disclose, I mean, reflecting on the 80-20 rule this year, I mean, what have been the changes that you've seen this season within the cap? That we went, that we made from last season, this season? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, well, one of the other challenges I didn't speak about um, was that it is hot. It is tremendously hot. And I don't, I don't know what, I forget what month you're in, but I imagine you could feel, you know, some of that heat as well. And, you know, and I think we definitely came in with some preconceived notions about how we were going to train and manage the group, you know, through the, just the, the climate here. And um, I think, I think we realized that there's this kind of like, there's a, a, a significant kind of chronic long-term effect actually living in this climate and, and, and what it does and how we actually have to train and, and manage the group. And I think, you know, we definitely threw out at least 20% of how we did stuff last year and changed it to this year. And I think, you know, um, when it came to the, any games in the, in the warm climates, I felt like we really thrived at the end of these games this year um, in part, because I think we had a freshness and, and 
know, part of it is the players are now used to it more as well. Um, and it's funny because there's definitely a physiological adaptation that happens, you know, with the climate, but I think there's also equally a, a, you know, a mental perceptual, you know, uh, adaptation, um, to climate as well that cannot be understated, you know, um, that we definitely made some changes in our training rhythm, our periodization, um, as it related to the climate. And, uh, and I think you see that, you know, with some of the success we had through the really, really hot months, um, this year, you know, we played, we lost to the LA Galaxy on May 30th before, you know, the international break. And then we came back and I think we played in Montreal, um, July 17th, maybe something like that. And, uh, no, sorry, June 17th. And then, um, I think we won seven of eight, you know, June, July, August with some of the warmest months of, uh, of Austin, you know, and I think that's, that's a credit to, you know, the coaches also being open to changing how we're doing things and evolving our processes as well. So. It really is a unique and fascinating ecosystem. Austin, I think you could yeah. do a podcast <laughs> on the city yeah. itself, just on yeah. its own. But as we bring this podcast to close, Dave, I mean, it's been hugely informative for myself and broader insightful just to hear some of the processes and routines which you guys practice at Austin and to hear of your earlier career to date. But I mean, if we are going to close, what would be the one piece of advice you would have for those who are wishing to thread a similar path to yourself? I mean, I, I guess my first thought is don't try to. <laughs> you know, I think that it's funny, one of the things that came out of, of my studies, um, and there's a, there's a, a, you know, a, a professor, academic in Australia, um, Carl Woods. And so Carl Woods is in Melbourne, um, and he's done a tremendous amount of studying studies on uh, complex systems and kind of transdisciplinary uh, effect concepts and pro sports right and so um i really i'm this big believer in this kind of transdisciplinary right you have you have multidisciplinary which means you have a organization with multidisciplines you have a interdisciplinary which means that there's there's some level of interaction between all the disciplines within an organization and then i think you have transdisciplinary which really is you want something to develop and evolve that's never that's never been there before right and so um, how do you operate an organization in a space where you're allowing these new roles to develop that have never developed before? And, and I mean, my role, and I say that because 15 years ago, the role that I have now didn't exist. So when I entered MLS 15 years ago, my goal was not to be a high performance director in MLS because actually those roles don't exist. And there's, there's probably a good chance that 15 years from now, my role will be totally different than it is now. Right. And so it's more about understanding where the sport is going and um, and where elite sport in general is is evolving to. You know, and I think that um, there's there's got to be some level of kind of an interdisciplinary understanding that does become transdisciplinary and that it's something that doesn't exist. And that could be something between um medical and performance it could be some sort of rehab type specialist uh, that doesn't currently exist um you know one of the one of the pieces that came through uh in my studies was with a you know a 
NFL performance director that talked about, you know, he sees that these specialists in different areas of rehab that could be performance, they might be medical, it doesn't really matter, you know, that that's what he's out searching for. Um, and so I think that's, that's what I would say is like, don't, don't, if you're a young practitioner, don't aim to get my role now, because my role now is going to be different now than it's going to be in five years, right? So you really have to try to figure out how everything is going to evolve and what the new demands of my role are going to be three, four, five years from now. Some some very eye-opening advice, and I think it's it's necessary to hear. It's very much the finish line with no end, isn't it, the football industry as a whole. But um, Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure to finally get you on the show. Uh, hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and best luck for the upcoming playoff campaign ahead. For sure. I appreciate it. I appreciate it.